You're listening to the Women's Hope Podcast of the Masters University with Dr. Shelby Cullen and Kimberly Cummings. Join them as they bring hope and encouragement through 25 years of combined experience in biblical discipleship and counseling as ACBC counselors. Shelby and Kimberly provide biblical and practical wisdom by coming alongside women with the teaching and resources necessary to grow in the grace and the knowledge of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're going to be in Philippians 2, and I'm going to read all of Philippians 2, 1 through 11, but for time's sake, we are going to really just fly by uh, the first eight verses. I would love to be with you all day and talk about this passage because it really is the crux of dying to self. Um, In the late 1700s, there was a British lieutenant general, and his name was Henry shrapnel. He was an artillery officer, and he is actually the one who invented the bombshell that encases dozens of other uh, balls or shots. And when that bomb goes off, that shell bursts open and all those shots scatter everywhere making for greater hit of the target. And I want to talk today about shrapnel, the shrapnel of sin of self-love. Because you will never see in scripture where selfishness is self-contained, ever. When you see a picture of selfishness, it always has shrapnel, always. So a self-focused life within the body of Christ will be very similar to that. We can call it, say, spiritual shrapnel. A little tongue twister there. When an individual believer is pursuing desires that are selfish or, as Shelby said, worldly, uh, we are encased in self-love, pride, and self-exaltation. And the damage will fall on Christ's church and Christ's name will be harmed. The only way to avoid this type of shrapnel is death to self. So make no mistake, when that uh, shell of a selfish heart is discharged, there will be shrapnel. Sin always has shrapnel. So I want to talk about today living in freedom from a self-focused life. We know there's going to be shrapnel because of the fall, right? We know sin has consequences and we have either been sinned against or we sin against others. And so when we respond to life in a selfish way, it affects others. And so we're going to look at a passage that uh, talks to us about what what happens when we are living that way. So I hope you have your Bibles open to Philippians 2 or your phones, whatever devices that you're using. And I'm going to read the first 11 verses. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if in any affection and compassion make my joy complete... By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing, underline that word, from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant in being made in the likeness as a man. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death. Death on 
a cross. For this reason, God bestowed on him the name which is above every name. What we just sang about, right? So that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, like I said, that's a lot of verses. So we're going to do a flyby because I basically took three lessons and I put it into one. So hold on to your seats. Now, just as a flyby, as we look at Philippians, we know that this was a problem in the church of Philippians. They were having problems with people who were living self-centered lives. Um, Some were with outside of the church and two were within. The ones that were outside of the church were using the gospel with wrong motives and harming the church. And Paul was the recipient of some of the persecution that he had because people were misusing the gospel to get him in trouble. But there was also disagreement within the church by two chicks named Euodia and Syntyche. But they were partners in the gospel. They were believers. But within the church, there was a problem. And we see this today, right? We know it happens. It happens, but by God's grace, we have been given his word in how to work through situations just as Euodia and Syntyche did um, as partners for the gospel. So selfishness is a danger for all of us. I bet we could all probably name five ways we were selfish before we even got to the conference to hear about selfishness today. My husband's been joking. She's speaking at a selfish conference. So it's just been kind of fun. It's been the joke in our house. So none of us are exempt from this. It's something that until we are glorified, it's a danger to our own hearts and it becomes a problem within the body of Christ. It will sully God's name. It causes unbelievers to question the veracity of the gospel, and it grieves our Holy Spirit. So in Philippians 2, Paul is addressing the very antidote for a selfish heart, and it shows us that we are called to live a life of self-forgetfulness, a life of Christ-like humility that will play out practically in how we think and care for others. So instead of shrapnel, instead we have this healthy, fostering, one-anothering, loving care for each other. So we know in churches, problems arise, We see uh, that there are times that we have to take stance on theological issues. Shelby and I are not afraid to stand for uh, a biblical view of womanhood. So we know it's okay. We'll get mocked and we're not afraid of that. But we will stand till our dying day on biblical womanhood because why? It's being attacked. But this isn't so much what this passage is talking about. This passage is not talking so much about theological issues, but it's talking about what I call meological issues. You know what I mean, right? This is the idea of uh, issues, meological issues that are rooted in our desires, our preferences, our agendas that regard me more than God or others. And so this is really what this passage is about because it is written to the believers in the church of Philippi and they are struggling with some meological issues. So we've read Philippians 2, but I want to start with in verse 1, the foundation of freedom from self. The foundation of freedom from self. Paul points in this passage, just in verse one, um, to four foundations of selfless freedom. I love this passage because all the practical is there. It's all there. Um, And he mentions in verse one that uh, from, this is the basis of our unity, okay? 
Um, so instead of shrapnel, we're going to be unified brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, they're rooted in an internal motivation that every single believer should uh, desire that God is glorified first and foremost. Um, Look at verse one. It says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the spirit, if any affection and compassion, that word if there, that little bitty word if, would be better translated saying since, because, not if it happens to exist, it does exist. These four things exist, and we need to cling to those things so that we can live a selfless life. And the first one there is encouragement in Christ. Since there is encouragement in Christ, we can live a selfless life. And there's two ways that Christ encourages us. Well, there's so many more ways that Christ encourages us, but I have 45 minutes. So I'm just going to point to two. Okay. I'm just going to point to two. Uh, First of all, the word encouragement there is paraclesis, and that you probably have heard uh, used of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, right? So what is being said here is that Christ encourages us. He cheers us on and has a supporting influence in our lives. That's what that means. And so he is encouraging us in two ways that he encourages us. First of all is by praying. He prays for us. He is the great high priest who is interceding for us right now. But listen to what he says in John 17, 11, and also verses 20 and 21. This is the high priestly prayer. And look what he says. He says, I'm no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I have come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name in which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are as the Godhead is. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they may also be one in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. This is an opportunity for the gospel when we are living lives that are unified as the Godhead is unified. People will see that there is something so otherly, so different than what they're seeing in the world that they're going to start asking questions. And God will use that to draw people to himself. But Jesus Christ is interceding for us. He is praying for us. But the most important thing is that he died for us. That is the greatest encouragement that we can have in Christ Jesus. John 12, 32 says, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Christ's sacrificial love draws his chosen ones to himself, and it enables us to in turn live selflessly, united as in Christ ones. So let that sink in. That is an amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? That is encouragement. And I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He's one of my many favorite old dead guys. And he says, because their, th- their, their theology is not going to change, so I don't have to be in a panic that I'm going to quote somebody, and then their theology is going to change, and then I have, anyway, it's a thing. So, <laughs> but Charles Spurgeon said this, he said, the heaviest end of the cross lies ever on his shoulders. That's encouragement. It said, he goes on further to say, if he bids us to carry a burden, he carries it also. That's encouragement, ladies. That's encouragement. 
So we see Christ's encouragement. We also see in verse one, love's consolation, since there is consolation of love or if there is any consolation of love. The love of God has been so poured out into your lives that your heart's motivation should be to die to self and live selflessly. Ladies, we have been deeply loved by a holy God. If you are a believer, you have received the ultimate comfort in Christ. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. So when we walk away from self-righteousness and selfishness, and turn to the work of Christ, as he says to come to me. We are coming to someone whose yoke is easy and his burden is light because he's carried it. He has carried it. Amazing love, amazing love. So we, because of that, should be motivated to love others through this grand paradox of selfless living. We also should be selfless because of the Spirit's fellowship. It says it right there in verse one, when a person receives Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they receive the Holy Spirit. It is impossible to have salvation without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12.3 says this, no man can say that Jesus is Lord, but by his Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit has not drawn you to Jesus Christ for salvation, it's not real. He does the work, and praise God, he does do the work. He did it in my life. He, he can do it in my life. He can do it in anyone's life. So take this, for example, in the book of Philippians. Um, and not just in the book of Philippians, but we read about the Philippians in the book of Acts. And there is this commonality in Philippians. And it's really amazing because have you ever said as a girl, I don't really have that much in common with them. And it could be a fellow believer. Well, in Philippians, there was a jailer, a slave girl, and a rich woman. And they all had the commonality of Christ and served him. And so we need to keep that in mind because that promotes unity. Because I know we can get in our little camps and our little cliques. And I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about discernment here. I'm just talking about those of us who are all in Christ, who have the same Savior that is rooted on the same truth. We have something in common. We can say that we have something in common with every other believer, and that's Jesus Christ. That's encouragement to my heart. So I want you to stop and think for a minute. Maybe there's somebody on campus, maybe at your church, and maybe you feel like, I just don't have anything in common with them. And just stop and think, and, and especially if they're not sitting next to you, but maybe put their initials on your notes or something. But be careful. <laughs> Use wisdom in that. But I want you to remember that person, okay? And I want you to take the, the, the interest in them and look for ways that you can share that commonality in Christ and grow that sisterly relationship. Um, so, we are to be motivated by our common bond in the spirit to selfless living. We should also be selfless because of God's compassion. It says in verse one, since any affection and compassion. The word affection there is a Greek word, splanknon, and it literally means bowels. It means I love this person this much. God's love for us is so intense, right? It's a bowel, deep within kind of love for others. And then that word compassion is oiktirmas, and it's the word mercies. He has great mercy. And so you see this God that we don't see, you see the compassion and the infection embodied in his character for us. And that 
is the affection and compassion that we have. And because of these mercies, we should be a merciful people. How are we going to look different from the world if we aren't merciful, if we are not merciful? But because of his mercies and his deep love that we have been shown by God, sending his son from the throne room of God at his right hand to earth to die for us, that's love. I like what John 13, 35 says. If you've uh, been with me long enough, uh, maybe you've sat in my class on the one another's. But <clears throat> John 13, 35 says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is evidence of our faith. This is proof that we are God's children if we have love for others. So as one who has been shown this infinite love, this mercy, this compassion, this grace, we have been knit together by the work of Christ into one body by the Holy Spirit. It is such a beautiful thing. And because of that, we have been instructed to die to self and to live to Christ. So there will be fruit when you live a selfless life. And that's the next thing I want to talk about is the fruit of selfless living. And that's the second half of verse two and four. And Philippians two, it says, make my joy complete. And this is Paul speaking, right? He's the author of Philippians. Make my joy complete. And that word complete there is flood my joy. It's a word that means as a flood, overflowing. When someone says their cup overflows, that's what they're saying. So be, make my joy complete by being in the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. So the first fruit of selfless living begins with harmony. Being in harmony with God's people is supposed to be one of our greatest joys. I love what Psalm 133 says. The first part of it says, How good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell in unity. Can you say that about the people that you're around? Can you say that about your church? If someone came to visit your church tomorrow, would they see Yodia and Syntyche or would they see harmony? Ask yourself that. So God's people living in harmony is this awesome and powerful thing. But it doesn't mean, and we have to be careful about this, um, that we, especially with influencers, right, um, that are telling us that we look a certain way, think a certain way, do a certain thing. We're not cookie cutters. Okay, we're not cookie cutters um, of one another. Identity does not mean we are identical. Okay, so we need to understand that there is a difference between unity and uniformity. So take a choir, for example. I'm not a singer, but I've heard that they all sing in unison, yet they all have different parts. So they're unified, but they're not uniform right? That is why harmony is such a good way to describe how we complement one another. We each have different personalities given to us by God. We have gifts, we have skills, we have varying roles to play. But in Christ, we primarily have the same interest and we have the same spirit. So we have the same desires, hopes, and goals to glorify his name to reach lost souls for Christ and enjoy him forever. So Paul describes how this looks in verse two. He says, make my joy complete by being of one mind. Again, he gives four very practical components of what this looks like. The first one is, the first facet of harmony is one mind. This is like-mindedness. Literally, it means to think the same thing. 
We're to have agreement in doctrine. That will make us like-minded. That will always draw us together. And those who don't have the same doctrine will go elsewhere, right? It's just what happens. Like attracts like. So we are to uh, be striving to work through uh, everything, including doctrinal differences in a spirit of love. We are to have the same mind. And then the second facet of harmony there is one love. I'm not talking about Cain's chicken tenders, even though that's a really good thing. Um, But this is maintaining the same love, love for God and love for others. In love for God, it's our desire to know God better. Are you spending time in God's word to get to know him better? Are you surrounding yourself with uh, sound teaching so that you can get to know God better? Are you studying his attributes? Are you studying who he is? That is a great way to get to know God better. Study the, the perfections of God and get to know him better. Um, And you also want to have that intimacy of being known by God. You are known, you are chosen and loved by God, and you want to experience that. Desiring to spend time with Him him in prayer. Uh, That was hit in in our breakout session. If we're not praying, we're living independently. We are living independently, and that's pride and that's selfishness. Are you hungering for time in God's word? But we will also love others. We're to love others equally in a 1 Corinthians 13 type love. It shows patience, kindness, concern, humility, gentleness, objectivity, honesty, forgiveness, and sincerity when you are living out 1 Corinthians 13. Ladies, would someone characterize you this way? Would they say, yeah, man, she models 1 Corinthians 13? Something we would want to practice in our lives. Um, The word for love is agape, and agape love is a willful love. It is a love that does best what is best for the subject, okay? It does what is best for the subject. That is the very opposite of what the world is saying about self-love, is it not? We are not the object of the love that we are to give. The other person is. Turn to 1 John 3, and we're going to go through some verses real quick, quick that makes it clear that this kind of love is what we are to have for other believers. 1 John chapter 3, we'll start at verse 14. First John 3.14 says, We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we have love for the brethren. And then also we see here that this is not just an emotional love, okay? This is a sacrificial love. There's a difference. Genuine love isn't just how you feel, okay? It is sacrificial So you're going to feel strained sometimes by loving others. Will the Lord give you the strength? Absolutely. But we are pressing on toward the goal. And as we're doing that, this kind of love is going to take great sacrifice. Look at 1 John 3, 17. It says there, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, How does the love of God abide in him? Wow. That's evidence of our salvation, that we are concerned about the needs of others and want to take care of others. Look at also 1 John 3, 18, and see what it says there. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but indeed and in truth. Ladies, we are not just to love with lip service. We are to love with acts of service, okay? It's acts of service that show our love to others. 
And then look at 1 John um, 3, 16. We see total sacrificial love here. This is total sacrifice, okay? In verse 16, we see what it says. It says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And then it says, so we should run over the lives of our brethren with our own desires. No, that's not what it says. It says we ought to love or lay down rather our lives for the brethren. Are you known as somebody who lays down your life? Or are you the one doing the running over? We need to lay down our lives, lay down our desires, put them at the throne of grace and serve others with sacrificial love. The love that is described here is a Christ-exalting love. So this is when um, we can see that what I said earlier about practical theology being exchanged for meology, and this is when our love is rooted in self and instead of others. And I have another Spurgeon quote. He says, every man must serve somebody. We do not have a choice as to that fact. Those who have no master will be slaves to themselves. Depend upon it. You will either serve Satan, and Shelby did a wonderful job of explaining that earlier, didn't she? Or self, or we will serve the Savior. Romans 5 8 tells us this, but God demonstrates, he demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrated love through the death of his son. He demonstrated death through his son. This is the type of love we are to maintain. To maintain something means that we keep up with it. It's not, oh, I did this, I took somebody's tray in the calf and then one and done. No, this is lifelong looking around, being situationally aware, if I can use a term that's being thrown out there today of what's going on in the lives of others. Be aware of what's, what their faces look like. Do they look sad? Do they look happy? And then don't be afraid to ask. And not just about the weather, right? Because we're loving the weather right now. We feel like we're in Washington. But more than that, ask heart-penetrating questions and die to the fear of what the answer might be. Because sometimes it gets messy and we don't want to know. But if God has put you in the path of someone, maybe he wants you to know. And so you want to die to self that way. Is this how your dorm room looks like? Are you laying down your life in this way? Are you maintaining a daily death? I wake up and I say to myself, today is a great day to die. I just tell myself that. Today is a great day to die. And when I tell myself that, I am going to be putting, like you said, teaching myself, preaching truth to myself that I am to die to self. Today is a great day to die. So we also see a facet of harmony is one purpose. In verse two, it says, we will be intent on one purpose. And funny thing, this purpose is multifaceted, so we'll just keep on going. But this means that we will cherish and chase the same thing. When we cherish Christ more than our own agendas and desires, we will be on the path of chasing selflessness. Okay? We just will. And that's what our hearts should desire. Uh, the choir that I talked about, the harmony, God is the director. And we are just parts in that. And when we pursue this, ladies, there won't be as many opportunities for that shrapnel to explode because we're dying to self, right? It's not exploding and bursting out, okay? Look at verse three. 
Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. We also see in this verse a negative command, and then in verse 4, a positive command. And Paul is making a point this way. And he says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Jerry Vines calls selfishness and empty conceit the twins of turmoil because it causes trouble. It causes trouble with a capital T as we sing in the musical. Selfishness or strife in the King James Version or in the NIV, it's selfish ambition. That Greek word there is rivalry, factions, a party spirit. So Paul is using the same word in Galatians 5.20 when he lists the deeds of the flesh. And I I just want to ask you, what are your desires? Are you seeking after fleshly desires or are you seeking after God's will, his desires for you in your life? If you're desiring to honor him and please him, and the thing that you are seeking is within the guardrails of his truth, go after it with all of your heart. But if it's not, then it's rooted in selfishness and you need to guard your heart from that. But Galatians uh, 5 tells us, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, Uh, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions. This is what describes the flesh. So when we live this way, we are living in a fleshly way. And we see this in scripture. One place that we see it is in 3 John 9. And there was this guy named Diotrephes. And Diotrephes divided a church because of his own personal desires. He rejected Paul's teaching because he wanted to be number one. And so see that shrapnel flew and a church was harmed. The name of Christ was harmed. There will be little more that is damaging to the body of Christ and to the local local church and to the name of Jesus Uh, when factions and cliques and groups with self-driven agendas creep in. Watch out. Watch out for your own heart and watch out. Be on the alert. And this, this idea, you know, me talking about cliques, it doesn't mean we don't have friends. We love friends. I have great friends. I love my friends. Some of them are here today. But our agendas are to be motivated in love, Biblical friendships will spur you on to love God and others more. Look for those friendships. I have surrounded myself with those kind of friendships because they're going to point out my sin and love, and they're going to help me to run this race. Those are the kind of friendships you want. So uh, we are not to have empty conceit. The word there is a compound word, which means empty glory. I was told one time, it's like the contents of a bubble. What's inside of a bubble when it pops? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. There's nothing. It's empty glory or a vain opinion, an empty opinion. Pride is the root of our sin. And this was the root of Satan's fall. And it was the one that ushered Adam and Eve to fall as well. Talk about shrapnel right? Talk about the whole world being affected by the fall because of the choice of people who believe they could be like God, because that's what it is. So if we're going to be glory grabbers, rest assured there will be shrapnel. There will be shrapnel. Um, This is called thinking too highly of ourselves, which the world strongly encourages us to do. They tell us that everything we have is within ourselves. Love yourself more. Forgive yourself more. all All those things. You do you. You do you if you're doing Christ, okay? You can do you if you are following Jesus Christ 1,000%. That's okay. Then you can do you. 
But 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, For who regards you superior? And what do you have that you did not receive? But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you have not received it? We have nothing. We have nothing to boast about but Jesus Christ. And so that's what we want to boast about. Humility is the fruit of death, dying daily. It's a good day to die daily. So we take up our cross and we follow Christ. And remember what I said about what Spurgeon said? The heaviest end of the cross ever lies on our Savior. It's on His shoulders. That's where we lay the burden of dying to self. So then he gives a positive command in verse 3. He says, With humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And he starts that little passage with the, the word, but. He turns the, the page there from this, this glory robbery to dying to self and humility and looking out for the interest of others. First Peter 5, 5 through 6 says, All of you, talking to the believers, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he, not me, may exalt you at the proper time. So humility is not thinking little of yourself. It's just not thinking of yourself at all. It's self-forgetfulness. So, like I said, we have this huge fixation on self. I mean, what generation, it was your generation or just right before that came up with the term selfie. That was never a word. But we have this fixation on presenting ourselves in such a way and taking pictures of ourselves. And it's been fun. I've, did, I've done that today. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not judging that. But what's the motive behind it? What's the motive behind it when we do that? What are we promoting? Are we robbing glory? Or are we excited to tell others about these, these great things that God is doing in our lives? Um, and and also, we've been so psychologized, and self-actualization is a part of psychology. And, and there's a quote by Paul Vitz, and it says this in his book, Psychology as Religion. He explains the problem really well. He says, it should be obvious that the relentless and single-minded search for and glorification of the self is at the direct cross purposes with the Christian injunction to lose itself. It's completely opposite. That's why here we teach biblical counseling, right? Because it fights against the worldly views, the worldly psychologies. There's over 200 of them. So certainly Jesus never lived or advocated a life that would qualify by today's standards of self-actualization. He never did. But for the Christian, self is the problem, not the paradise. Self is the problem. So understanding this a problem um, involves us being aware, and especially of the sin of pride. And correcting this condition requires obedience, humility, and trust in God. We live in a society saying, love yourself more, but the Bible says, deny yourself daily. We live in a world that says, I can do anything I set my mind to. We don't, we can't. Apart from Christ, we can do absolutely nothing. Nothing. The world says you need self-esteem. The Bible says you need God-esteem. The world says that your worth is within you. Christian, you find your worth in God, not in yourself. And as I will quote Shelby, ladies, it's not about you. We say that all the time on our podcast and we get a kick out of it. And we want a mug so that I can't just say today is a good day to die. But on the mug, as I'm drinking my wonderful Americano with a splash of cream, 
on it would say, it's not about you. Because I have to remind myself all the time that this is not about me. The reason that Jesus told us to deny ourselves is because ourselves is the biggest thing getting in the way. We're getting in the way. The Bible teaches humility, not self-exaltation. Proverbs 11.2 says, with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 16.19 says, it is better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Ladies, don't buy into this world's philosophy. Humility is not an ornament that Christians wear, according to Richard Baxter. It is actually a, an essential part of the new creature, okay? It is a part of who you are as a redeemed person in Christ. Now, I have seven things that Jerry Bridges gives to us, and I want to read them to you because these are really good self-evaluation questions to see if you're loving selflessly, and I'll try to go slow. First of all, you cherish for your neighbors the very same love that you bear towards yourself. Number two, in your dealings with them, you never show selfishness, irritability, peevishness, or indifference. Number three, you make a genuine interest in their welfare and seek to promote their interests, their honor, and their well-being. I like football because I was interested in a guy, not because I was interested in football. He was interested in football, so I learned football because he was interested in football. And guess what? We've been married 38 years. See? I don't like football, but I loved David. And so I wanted to know everything I could about football. And you know what? I know where all the cameras are going when because I watched so much football with my husband. And I just learned the sport that the best I could because I wanted to love it as much as him. That's a simple thing. It's a simple thing. And in Texas, I think it is required. So <laughs> also, you never regard them with a feeling of prideful superiority, nor do you ever talk about their failings. Are you more quick to talk about the failings of others than you are to praise them and encourage them? Also, number five, you never resent any wrongs they do to you, but instead you are always ready to forgive. Be quick to overlook those things, okay? Be quick to overlook those things. And then I mentioned 1 Corinthians 13 earlier, verses four and five, but I like how he asks in this way. He says, you are always patient and kind, never envious or boastful. You're never proud or rude, never self-seeking. You're not easily angered and you keep no record, even in your mind of wrongs done to you. That is selfless love. So as we mature in the Christian faith, we will grow in the understanding of holiness and the majesty of God. We will be seeing the holiness of God and his greatness, and it will increasingly abolish our pride as we die to self and increase in humility. Uh, it's an interesting thing when you look at Paul's writings you see his humility actually grows. It increases over the, the, the years of his life and his faith in Christ. And we get to see it in writing, in the way he describes himself um, in his letters. Uh, in 55 AD, he wrote 1 Corinthians. And in, in chapter 15, verse 9, he calls himself the least of the apostles. Then just two years after that, he calls himself the least of not just the apostles, because that's kind of a big deal, right? I'm not an apostle. We're not apostles, right? He says, I'm the least of all the saints. I'm the least of all believers. And he says that in Ephesians 3.8. And then two years after that, he describes himself as the chief 
of sinners. He, his humility is growing ever more as he matures in his walk. And that last quote was from 1 Timothy 1, 15. So ladies, where are you in your maturity level? Are you promoting self? Or do you realize that you too, like Paul, are the chief of sinners? That is a mark of maturity, that type of humility. We recognize that he is the master, and this is our submission. We recognize that he is the father and that we are the child. That's our security. That's a beautiful thing. And we appreciate that he's the savior because we know that we are the sinner. That is our humility. So as we corporately put off pride and put on humility, this beautiful thing is going to be happening within the church and unity is going to blossom and people are going to know that we are in Christ ones because we will look absolutely nothing like the world. But in 4a, he gives a, a, a negative command. He says, do not merely look out for your own personal interest. Don't get caught up in your interest only. Don't be like the people in Philippians 2, 21. It says that they sought after their own interest and not those of Jesus Christ. We need to guard our hearts. There were people in the Philippian church that were self-absorbed. There are people among us that are self-absorbed as well. That is our default if we are not guarding our hearts and understanding our identity in Christ and putting off sin and putting on the righteousness of Christ. But he also in 4b gives a positive command. He says, but also for the interest of others. That's the way Jesus was, right? He had others in view all the time. He said, not my will, but thine. His very food was to do the will of his father. That is, that is such a care and interest for others. And then, and when he looked on, on Jerusalem and he saw God's chosen nation, Lord, forgive them, they don't even know what they're doing. They don't know. So the word of God is calling us to be meaningful in our walk. Uh, we're to be countercultural and we're to put others in front of ourselves and we're to live genuinely with a servant's heart. And then real quickly in verses five through eight, we will see that we, when we are most like Christ who redeemed us, that we are uh, living a life that is God-centered and not self-centered. So will you be willing to do that in your homes and in your churches and in your dorm rooms? And we see this example of our faithful Lord's example of selfless, selflessness. And I, I love this because he doesn't just tell us what to do. He doesn't just say what Jesus did. did. He shows the magnitude of the work of Christ. It's the supreme example of freedom, of self-love. The one who had every right to remain at the throne room of God divested himself of those rights so that he could die in place for you and me. So I just want to close prayerfully as we process these verses. It says in five through eight, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on the cross. Ladies, that is the type of way, according to the LSB, we are to think. Have this way of thinking among yourselves. This attitude, think like Christ would think. When you're struggling with an issue and you're wondering, am I dying to self? Ask yourself, is this how Christ would think in this situation? Is this how Christ would respond in this situation? Think like Christ. I love what 1 John 2, 6 says. It says, the one that says he abides in him 
ought also himself walk in the same manner as he walked. Are we Christ imitators? So we need to employ our minds. We need to be purposeful. We need to uh, have thoughtful planning to think a particular way. Because as a man thinketh, so is he, right? If we're thinking a certain way, the actions will follow. Such a staggering thought. He existed in the form of God, but he did not regard equality a thing to be grasped. And then we see his conduct. The word existed there is the idea of an existence that was incontinuous of a previous estate. He didn't begin in, in Mary's womb. He's a pre-incarnate Christ, but yet came to earth, condescended this, man, this God who existed in eternity past, came to earth. It says in Hebrews 1, 3, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by his power. He is an exact representation of God. Exact. And he didn't regard that thing to be grasped. He didn't hold on to it. He willingly, with the joy that was set before him, went to the cross. And so what is our charge this morning? Our charge is this. We're to think of others, not of ourselves. Are you like the Pharisees who wanted the chief seats? In Matthew 23, 4 through 7? Or are we like Christ who gave up the, the throne room of God for the benefit of others? Are you always looking out for yourself or are you looking out for others? Even when it's messy, even when you know this is going to take a lot of time if I invest in this person, they're needy. We're all needy, Okay. That's why Jesus came. We're all needy. So he emptied himself and took on the form of a bond servant. That word there is kenosis. He divested himself of all of his rights. He was still 100% God and 100% man. It's math. I don't do math, but this math I love. He was all God and all man. He was 100% God in this world, but yet he was still 100% man in this world. Phew, crazy to think. We can't wrap our minds around it. So he did all of this so that he could serve others. And we see that in Mark 10:45. It was Jesus's mission statement. He said, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to give his life for a, ran a ransom for many. He took on the form of a slave. He took on the form of a slave. So that is our charge. And I want us to think a little bit about the picture of slaves. A slave owned nothing. Okay. And remember that quote that I gave from Spurgeon earlier that said, no one, uh, one who has no master is a slave to themselves. We are slaves as believers to Jesus Christ, the master. A slave owned nothing. Jesus had no place to lay his head. He had to borrow a donkey to ride into Jerusalem. And so we need to remember as well, anything that we have doesn't belong to us. We are owners of nothing and stewards of everything. We own nothing. We steward it all. A slave carried other people's burdens. Jesus carried, according to Isaiah 53, our burdens to the cross. Therefore, we need to bear the burdens of others. Whether it's in finances, whether it's in prayer, whether it's strengthening a stumbling sister, we need to bear the burdens of others. We see, it says in John 13, 14, if I then, the Lord, the teacher, washed your feet, 
you also ought to wash one another's feet. We are to be humbly serving others. So Christ's example was complete compliance. He was obedient to the point of death. That is amazing. And we see Jesus didn't have to die because he had no penalty that he had to pay for. He was sinless. Death was the wages, according to Romans 6, 23, of sin. But yet he took that on in our place. And he took that gruesome penalty on our behalf. Ladies, we need to lose our lives for the lives of others as Christ did. Just real quick in closing, a couple of things. There was a Brazilian missionary, and he went to what we would call something like a farmer's market or something like that that we have here today. But this was more uh, religious-centric, and it was a festival. And he saw a sign at one of the booths, and it said, Cheap Crosses. And he was crushed because the first thing he thought of was, Wow, Christ's cross was not cheap. But that's how we view it. And we need to understand the value of what Christ did on that cross so that we too can die to self. Ladies, ministry that costs you nothing will accomplish nothing. Be ready to die, J.H. Jowett said. Be ready to die. If it doesn't cost you anything, is it really worth living for? Because it's not going to accomplish anything. Be like Christ. In Matthew 16, we see this in verses 24 through 26. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Real quick, I like to give, give you something that like when you wake up, today's a great day to die. Or how about this? If we're to live, I'm going to give you this little acronym, okay? If we are to uh, die to self, that is truly living. So take this as a little help when you wake up in the morning. L-I-V-E. L, lose yourself. Matthew 16 and John 3.30. Ma oh, I just read John 16, but John 30, uh, sorry, 3.30 says, he must increase, but I must decrease. And then, uh, Shelby read this verse, for I Identify yourself with Christ. Okay, Galatians 2.20. For I've been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live. But the life that I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live by faith, I live uh, by the love of the Son of God who gave himself up for me. That was a Kim version of Galatians 2.20. So identify with Christ. Don't identify with the world. Don't identify with self. And then simply value others as God values others for V. At the very, very base of loving others, their fellow image bearers. When our children were little, one of my children was being bullied by a girl. And it would be conversation at the table. And... Instead of letting our child complain about it and the horrible things that were happening, glue poured in his hair and his jeans being cut with scissors and all of these terrible things that happened in first grade, we asked our son, can you please tell us three things that we can, can enjoy in this bully? Can you, can you name three things and he sat there and he just couldn't think of 
anything. <laughs> he was tired of being bullied and he just wanted the problem fixed. And my husband said, I know one. She's an image bearer of God. And that child never complained about that girl again. And she's still a bully. But you know what? My son learned a valuable lesson about his fellow image bearers and then how he is to love them even when he is mistreated. So we need to value others as God did. And then last of all, exemplify the commands of Scripture. We have the put-offs and the put-ons of Scripture. We see those in Ephesians 4 and other places as well. That will help you to deal with your own sin, right? And then you want to obey the one another's of Scripture. There's over 50 of them that tell you how you are to live this life within the body of Christ. I think it's like 57. So deal with your sin and then live with others. Do the one another's of Scripture. Practice selfless care as Christ commands. Ladies, if we do those things, if we die this way, we are truly living. And that's just something you can take with you, put it on your mirror in the dorm. This is how I'm going to die today. L-I-V-E. I am going to live for Christ. Thank you for listening to the Women's Hope Podcast of the Masters University. For more resources and episodes, visit masters.edu slash women's hope. For more information on the Masters University, visit masters.edu. We'll see you next time.